You know, uh, all of us live our lives uh, as rule followers. Whether you think uh, you're a rules person or not, some of us love rules. Some of us are a little anti-rules. But we all live our lives based on a set of rules. Um, I bet you make decisions financially based on some guidelines, some rules that you've adopted as it relates to finances, uh, as it relates to relationships. I bet there's a, a rule or a set of rules that kind of guide how you do relationships as it relates to pleasure in your life. Um, there's some pleasures you go for and some you don't. Why is that? Because you've adopted some rules, some rules for your life. We all live our lives based on a set of some kind of rules, guidelines, that uh, whenever we hit a crossroads or there's a decision to make, it helps guide us as we do uh, our lives. And uh, in this series, we're going to look at a rule of life uh, as it relates to three significant areas. Uh, The rule of life as it relates to sex, the rule of life as it relates to uh, dating, and the rule of life as it relates to singleness. And uh, we'll get to the rule of life a little bit later uh, in the message, but we're going to start by talking about sex. As mentioned earlier, this is a uh, mature subject matter, so if you feel uncomfortable, you're welcome to uh, turn off your hearing aid or uh, leave the room. No one will be offended. You know, it doesn't take rocket science or, you know, a whole lot of convincing to realize that we live in a very sex-crazed world. We live in a sexualized world. I mean, you can't go to the mall uh, without there being sexual content uh, uh, explicitly available for you. You can't go online. You can't, you know, scroll through Facebook or Instagram or social media. I mean, sex just seems to be everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And, uh, and sex sells, right? I mean, you watch a commercial and for 30 seconds, you're sure they're selling sex. And at the end, they're like, and buy our gum. Like, really? That's what it's about? Or, you know, buy this mouthwash or buy this car or, you know, buy. And it's like, what does gum and cars and, and mouthwash have to do with sex in a sex-crazed world? Everything, right? It has everything to do with sex. But here's the interesting thing, and we're going to kind of come back to uh, these two concepts throughout this series. Just so you know, this is not a one message. There is four messages in this series. So if there's some things that I didn't touch on uh, in the first message, come back again next week or listen again online. Uh, Hopefully I will touch on all of uh, what, not all of, but much of what you're thinking. Um, But here's, here's two lies, two myths that I think come out of a sexualized, uh, sex-crazed culture. And just so you know, we aren't like abnormal. There have been many sex-crazed cultures in the history of the world. In fact, when the New Testament was written, Rome and many of the cities in Rome, I think were much more sex-crazed than even our culture is, okay? So this isn't like, whoa, we're, we're doing something new here, okay? Humanity kind of does the same thing over and over and over again. So this isn't brand new. But there are some lies that we're going to see uh, from Scripture that it points out as it relates to a sex-crazed, uh, a sexualized culture. And the first lie is this. The lie that sex is everything. And here's how this lie goes. And we can adopt this and accept this unintentionally because it's just everywhere, right? And so we just adopt this idea. Sex is everything. If you aren't having it, if you're not somehow engaged with sexual content, you are missing the good life. In fact, you can't have the good life apart from this. It is everything. 
And if you're not engaging somehow with some sort of sexual content or sex itself, you are missing the good life. It's a lie. It's a myth. And scripture is going to show us actually something quite different. But it is something we can easily adopt. The second lie actually at first look seems contradictory, but it's not. The second lie is this. Sex is nothing. It's nothing. So have it with someone, anyone, everyone. I mean, it's like having a cup of coffee. You meet an acquaintance, have a sexual relationship, right? Because it's, it's nothing, no strings attached. And we can absorb this. I mean, just watch the last hero something movie. And it's like, how many women did he sleep with, right? It's like, sex is nothing. There's no, you can just kind of go through life. It's pain-free. You just have it, enjoy it. Because it's everything, and yet it's nothing. It's like having a cup of coffee with an acquaintance. And this is what we can begin to adopt as it relates to sex and sexual content. It's everything and yet it's nothing. We're going to see scripture actually teaches us something quite different. That actually sex is something. Something very significant, but it is not everything. And we're going to see that through this series. But there's a third lie. It's not actually coming out of a sexualized culture from the culture. But I think this is a lie or a myth that Christians have adopted while living in a sexualized culture. It's something that I think we have kind of absorbed, maybe unintentionally, maybe we even had some good reasons along the way, but we've kind of just accepted this and, and, and the world looks at us and they think we're crazy. But here's, here's a lie I think Christians believe, so not culture, this is Christians, that sex is bad. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you see that and you're like, yeah, Christians are crazy. I mean, Surely it's not bad. I mean, everything that tells me it's good. But we have kind of, and I think this is a pushback against the lie that says sex is everything and sex is nothing and, and this over-sexualized culture. Christians have pushed back and maybe unintentionally even, we have come to believe that sex is bad. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. Uh, one is that pretty much every time Christians talk about sex, what do we talk about it? We talk about it as if it's bad. We talk about it in negative terms. The only time we really talk about sex is when it's like, that's bad. And so maybe unintentionally we have this idea that sex must be, must be bad. And uh, this comes up from a long history. Our church fathers, um, Clement of Alexandria, <laughs> about 100, 150 years after the New Testament was written, um, he believed that uh, sex could only be had for procreation. Otherwise it was bad. Origin, a few uh, years, a hundred years or so later, church father uh, was so strong against sexual pleasure that he had himself castrated, okay? Um, and then Chrysostom, uh, who was a church father, he believed that Adam and Eve could not and did not have sex until after the fall of sin because, well, sex is, is bad. And so there's this kind of this, this underlying theme. And then more recently, we have the purity culture, that many of you grew up in, that so strongly stressed purity that it, it kind of inadvertently, maybe unintentionally, but often talked about sex as just this dirty, ugly thing. And if you've come out of that, you're, maybe your marriage has even suffered as you stepped in. You're like, how do I process this message with now being married? And so we have this, 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 this message. I think the other way we've got this idea that sex is bad is that as Christians, we just... We just don't talk about it. And so here's what usually happens when you don't talk about something without communicating, you're communicating that it must be taboo. It must be bad, 
right? And so as a church, we just, we just don't talk about it. And so inadvertently, maybe unintentionally, we have communicated with our non-communication that it's bad. And maybe we have good reasons to not talk about it. I know it's a sacred thing, and I know it's a very intimate thing. So to talk about it publicly is a little bit interesting. Sex is bad. Uh, you know, this idea of, of sex and Christianity, it's what led, I think, uh, Bertrand Russell, who is a 20th century philosopher and atheist, to say this, the worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude towards sex. He's like, you know, maybe Christianity would be okay, but this attitude, like, I just don't know if I could be a Christian, right? Well, here's the question. As it relates to the third lie, we're going to deal with these two throughout the series. But as it relates to the third lie, sex is bad, which is, I think is more specifically something Christians have taken. What does scripture actually say about it? Now we know from just a, a kind of casual reading of scripture, although there isn't like a verse that says this, we know from reading scripture that we are not to call evil good, and of course, we're not to call good evil, especially as it relates to what God says. We are not to call what God calls evil good, and we're not to call what God calls good as evil. So the question is, what does God say, really say about sex? Well, to start, we're going to start at the very beginning. The first five words of scripture, I think, lay a foundation there's, they, they lay a worldview, and it's so, so important. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Genesis. We're going to hang out in Genesis uh, this morning. But Genesis chapter 1, the first five words, so, so important. In the beginning, God created. And so much of our worldview as believers is built off of these first five words. Here's what this means. In the beginning, so when the start happened, and we think of everything as starts and stops, right? Because we had a birthday and we have an end day. Things just have starts and stops. So when everything started, guess who was already there? God. This means that God did not have a start because when things started, he was already there. He is before the start. He is an eternal God. We think of eternity as ending. He is also eternal as in beginning. There is no beginning. He has always been. And here's the other thing. In the beginning, God created, which means when everything was created, he was already there, meaning he is the uncreated one. Nobody, nothing created God. He has always been. And everything that has been created was created by him. And this tells us something about the devil. Satan, our enemy, is also a created being. He is not the uncreated one. The other thing this tells us about the devil is that he cannot create because all things that have been created were created by God. What the devil does is he counterfeits and he twists God's creation, but he cannot and does not create. And so we see that in the beginning, God, who has always been the uncreated one, he is the one who created everything for a purpose, with a purpose, on purpose. Everything that's been created for a purpose, with a purpose, on purpose. And then the writer of Genesis tells us the creation story. You can read about it. But there's this little phrase that shows up five times 
just sprinkled out throughout creation about the creation. And it, just so you're, if you're interested, like how did God do it? Genesis 1 isn't a great uh, picture and the writer didn't write it to tell us how God did it with all the details. It tells us who did it. You can read it uh, like 32 times in the story of creation, chapter one to ch- chapter two, verse four. I think there's 32 mentions of the word God over and over. It's God who created, God who created. The uncreated one created everything. But here's the little phrase that shows up over and over and over. And God saw that it was good, verse 10. And God saw that it was good, verse 12. And God saw that it was good, verse 18. God saw that it was good, verse 21. And God saw that it was good. After he separated the water from the, from the land, he saw that it was good. After he created the sun, moon, and stars, he saw that it was good. After he created vegetation, he saw that it was good. And then day six, after he created the animals that live on the land, He looked and saw that it was good. Do you get the theme? Everything God created, actually you tell me, everything God created was what? Good. But then something interesting happens. Six verses later after God created the land. There's a summary statement in verse 31, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Why the change? Now it could be that God looked at the sum of all creation and he put it all together and he stacked it all up together. He said, that's very good. But I have a hunch that there's something that happened between verse 26, 25, and 31. That something happened that changed God's mind or expanded it even further. Say, this isn't just good. It's like when my wife makes food and she's she's like, how is it, Elf? I'm like, it's good. And then there's other times she makes me supper and she's like, how's that? I'm like, it's good. And what we know is there is a spectrum of good, right? It's like God created everything. He's like, that's good. And then something happened between verse 26 and 31 and he looked at it and said, that's, now that's good. So what happened? Genesis, the writer of Genesis says this. Then God said, let us, and I want you to remember that word us. I'm gonna come back to it. I'm gonna say, hey, do you remember that word I told you to remember? What's the word? There you go. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. After God was finished creation, all of a sudden he said, wait, 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 I have an encore. And he chose out of his desire and will, he chose to make a creature that was more complex, more intricate, more amazing than any creature he had made and has made. He created a creature that would be in his image, not a replica of God. The creature would not be God, but it would be made in the very likeness, in the image of God. And he goes on, and God created mankind in his own image. Mankind, just so you know, is not mankind, it's humanity. Mankind sounds like it's male, it's humanity. The the Hebrew word is this idea of humanity. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, plural, humanity, them, plural, male and female, he created them. With our different biological parts, with the different ways we process and engage in problem solving in the world, different way we annoy one another to death. He created them male and female in his likeness. 
But then out of all the creation story, and this is so interesting. Remember, he kept saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. There is only one time God says something's not good. And it's after he created the man, the male. And all the women are like, yeah, mm mm-hmm, I knew it. I knew it all along. He's a smart God. He knows, I know, he knows. But guess what? It's not because of maleness. Surprise, I know, I... It's surprising, but it's something else. This is what God says is not good after creating everything good. Found in chapter two, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man, the male, to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. When he says I will make a helper, the word helper is is this idea of like a, a powerful ally. The exact same Hebrew word is used of God helping his nation and the people of Israel. It's not like someone who's like lower than, it's not like someone who is like uh, not equal to. No, no, this helper, the woman would be equal in value, would be like this powerful ally coming alongside the man. See, what was not good is not that the man was there. What was not good is that the man would be alone. God had a problem with aloneness. Why do you think God had a problem with aloneness? What was that word I told you to remember? Us. See, God, singular, said let us, plural. God, singular, said let us, plural, make humankind in our plural image. God is one God, he is not many gods. God is one God, one essence in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One being, yet three persons. It's the Trinity. It's so confusing. It's hard for us to understand. And yet within the very nature of God, here's what the Trinity tells us. God in his nature is relational. He has relationship within himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And when God said, let us make mankind, humanity, in our image, he was referring also to the relationship that humanity would have. And then, God says it's not good for man to be alone. Why? Because they don't represent, the male alone cannot represent the image of God, not fully. And God, who is one God, in three persons, has relationship with himself. He is similar, and yet there's difference between the Godhead. Likewise, within humanity, there is male and female, similarity, sameness, and yet difference, which means maleness and femaleness matters a great deal. As we represent the image, as we are image bearers of God. And so God created them. And then God said, this is not good. So he said, I'm gonna make a woman. And when God makes the woman, this is, what, uh, this is what Adam says. He says, oh baby, you are beautiful. We should get together. In fact, we should be one. Okay, that's in the Hebrew. You kind of have to do some. Anyways, here's what it says in English. You'll get it. It says that, okay? But here's what it says in English, in the NIV. The man said, Adam said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman for she was taken out of man. She is like the same as me, yet he looked at her and he's like, she is altogether different than me, right? Sameness yet difference. 
It's not like gender doesn't matter. Sameness, yet difference. Just as God is one God, three persons. So he says, whoa, Bowman, she was taken. See, I told you, it's there. And then, <laughs> that is why, this is interesting. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. I told you they would want to be one again. Because they were, it was like Adam says, I want to be one. And one was in the fullest sense, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically, including sex. There was this desire for the man to be one in marriage. This is a description of marriage as one flesh. And then the writer of Genesis says something very strange that we think, well, that doesn't seem to make any sense to what he's saying. But here's the interesting thing. Whenever the Bible says something, you're like, well, that seems useless. Why is that there? Pay close attention. It was there for a reason. And here's what he says next. It's always like we read this with kids. They're like, ugh. Adam and his wife Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Why would you tell us that? Because seven verses later, it's gonna show up. It's kind of like foreshadowing. That in their oneness, this is so beautiful. There is no sin. There's nothing wrong in the world. Everything is good. That Adam and his wife Eve were both naked completely bare before each other. We think naked simply as like physically, it included physical, but it was so much more than this. They were completely known by each other, vulnerable. There is, shame has to do with I'm not enough, I'm inadequate, I did something to make myself enough or that I am in my very essence not enough. And there was no such feeling, no such sense that there was inadequacy in either of them, even when they were completely vulnerable, physically, emotionally, spiritually, with each other. There was complete peace in their relationship. It was so beautiful. No shame. So what happened between verse 26 of chapter 1, 25 and 31, where God went from, it's good. It's very good. It's exceedingly good. What happened? Guess what happened? You. You happened. And maybe you don't believe it. Because you're filled with all kinds of shame. Condemnation. But God created humanity. He created you and I, people. And his image to reflect his likeness. And he said, it's so very good. And it included male and female. It included sexuality, sameness yet difference. It included sex because the very first command after verse 27 when he said he made a male and female is go and not make disciples, make babies. I don't know how you know if babies made. You may have to have that conversation with your husband. Um, but he said, go be fruitful, multiply. It was good. It was beautiful. And we know sex is good, right? It's why we buy the gum. Not because we like the gum, because the commercial was about sex. We're like, oh, that sounds good. Right? We know it. We know it's good. But here's the other side of it. We also know that it's not good. I imagine that some, for most of us, 
some of the greatest area of shame that we have in our lives, some of the greatest area of pain, either things we have done or things done to us, some of the greatest areas where if we could go back and live that 10 minutes again, if we could go back and relive that night again, if we could go back and relive 13 years old again, that area has to do with some sort of sexual content. And so that although we have this picture and this, this idea that sex is good, we also know that sex is tied to pain and sex is tied to abuse and sex is tied to regret. And what happened? Let me tell you what happened. In the garden, God created the man and woman. He said, you can eat of any. In fact, you can eat of all the trees in the garden. There is fruit and it's good. But there's two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. You can eat of the tree of life. He never said you couldn't eat of that. But he said the, the tree in the middle of the garden is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of that tree, you cannot eat. If you do, God said, if you eat of that, you will die. Now it's interesting, God never gives the reason why it was wrong for them to eat from the tree. But let me give you a few observations. As far as we know, there was nothing intrinsically wrong or evil about the tree. Remember, everything God made was, it was good. So nothing in the tree itself was evil or wrong. Another observation is Adam and later his wife Eve, who would be created, had full free will to choose to eat from the tree or not. God did not build a barrier that kept them from it. He did not predetermine. You cannot, because you're not gonna, you know. He, uh, apparently, observation, they could choose if they wanted to or not. Another observation that's interesting is the tree was called the knowledge of good and evil. When the tempter comes, when Satan comes, and we'll look at the passage in, in, in a second. When the tempter comes, he seems to dwell on this idea of knowing. See, at this point, for Adam and Eve, because everything was good, they actually didn't need to know or be able to discern what was good and what was evil. Everything was good. They simply needed to trust God on the one thing that he had said don't do. They didn't need to discern. They didn't need to know good and evil in that sense. They simply needed to trust their father in heaven, trust that what God said and just follow it. But the tempter comes and he, he points out this word, no, look what he says. He says to the woman who had said, hey, if we eat of it, we'll die. He said, you will not certainly die, the serpent said. The serpent is re uh, representing the devil or Satan. You will not certainly die for God knows, there's the word knows, it's gonna show up again. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, it is God who determines who knows what is good and evil. The man and the woman simply needed to accept through trust that what he had already determined was true. But there was a temptation that the tempter was coming with him saying, why don't you become the, the person who gets to determine what is good and evil? And you will be like God, knowing, discerning, determining what is good and evil. And so he says, for God knows. See, almost all temptation is rooted 
I would say all temptation is rooted in this. There is a call, a tempting to think God must not be good. God is withholding something from me. In fact, I don't know if I can trust his definition of good and evil. I think I'll determine it for myself. And we take the fruit and we play God. And nearly every temptation flows out of this premise. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And you know, we wouldn't be tempted if the thing that was tempting us wasn't good, pleasing, desirable, would we? And yet the woman and the man were tempted because it was good, it was pleasing, and it was desirable. And I think as it relates to sex and the reason there is so much pain because as it relates to sex in a sex-crazed culture where sex is everything and it's nothing, and you just go for it. And we use sex as power over people and under people to manipulate and abuse. And all kinds of pain have come because of sex. Because it looked pleasing and good and desirable. Of course it did. And if you're 13 years old and you're like, I haven't had sex, but there is a pull in you, isn't there? To explore. And you know that's not bad or wrong. God created you as a sexual being. And so to have curiosity and interest Desire, but what are you gonna do with that desire? Because it looks good, pleasing, and desirable. Are you gonna take the fruit? Are you gonna take it and say, I will decide what's right and where the boundaries are, determining what is good and evil? Or will you trust what God has already said regarding his boundaries as it relates to sex of good and evil? So what are the boundaries? Well, here's the interesting thing. As it relates to boundaries, God has given us boundaries not to withhold, but to accentuate his goodness. See, when the tempter came to Eve and said, for God knows and you're missing out and he's holding something from you, you just gotta take an experience. See, the boundary God had given around the tree was not to withhold something from the woman or the man. It was to accentuate his goodness. And when God gives boundaries as it relates to sex and it feels so constrictive and restrictive and we're like, surely he's holding out on me. I just gotta go explore. I gotta go outside his boundaries. That he has given those boundaries as a a means to accentuate his goodness to you. Will you trust him? So what's the boundary for sex? According to Genesis chapter one and two, and if we didn't have time to go through all of scripture, so I'm just gonna summarize kind of all of scripture. You can wrestle with this on your own, but here's my definition for the boundary of sex. Sex is good. It is good. And here's when. When it is between one man and one woman, one male and one female, in a monogamous, loving relationship of marriage. And when I mean good, it is good. It is good, 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 good. When it is between one man and one woman in a loving relationship of marriage. And some of you are like, I married and I didn't have a good experience of sex because it was not a loving relationship. 
But here's the boundary that God has given. It's why Job, as, as he talks about this idea of living within this boundary, Job is an older man, I presume. In chapter 31 said this, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Why would you do that, Job? I mean, is there anything wrong with lust? <laughs> not hurting anyone, right? Is there anything wrong with that? I mean, young women are beautiful. They're good, pleasing, and desirable. Why wouldn't you take that? Here's what he says later. If I walk down that pathway, it is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have uprooted my harvest. Other translations, it is a fire that burns to Sheol, which is another version for like the dead, the realm of the dead. It would destroy everything I own. See, Job understood that outside of God's boundaries, because sex is so powerful, it is so good, it is also so destructive outside of the boundaries that accentuate God's goodness. See, sex is good when it is between one man and one woman in a monogamous, loving relationship of marriage. God is good, so it's good. And you know what I'm talking about, within his boundaries. You know, it's interesting, even the way the Old Testament was written points to this. In the Old Testament in Hebrew, there's three main words our scripture uses for the word sex. Two of the words, sakab and bo, are almost exclusively only used when the act of sex is done outside of God's boundaries. It's when there's incest, rape, abuse. And yet when sex is done inside of God's boundaries, the, the writers use a different word almost all the time. And it's the word yada, which, get this, literally means no, to be deeply known. Let me give an example. The first time the word sex is kind of implied in scripture is chapter four, verse one, where it says this, Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to, a, to Cain. Now I'm pretty sure he didn't just lay there if we know how babies are made, right? So he didn't just lay there, but the literal word in Hebrew is the word know, to be deeply known. See, because this is what it was made. When the man said, I'll leave father and mother and be united to his wife, it wasn't just a sexual, physical act. He couldn't separate it from this oneness of, of, of mind, body, and spirit. And that's how God designed it, and that's when it's beautiful. So there's some common lies we believe. Sex is everything, sex is nothing. We're gonna talk about those next week and the week after and the week after as it relates to sex, dating, and singleness. But we also see there's a lie that says sex is bad. And it's not true. It can be true of our experience when we have experienced sex outside of the boundaries or sexual content outside of the boundaries of God. But the way he created it is so good. The devil twists what God makes good. So our series is entitled A Rule, A Rule of Life. So what would be a rule of life, the rule of life? And how would we apply it to the areas of sex, dating, and singleness? Well, it's interesting, once Jesus was walking and teaching and a religious leader came up to him and said, hey, out of all the commands, what's the most important command? It was a trap because there's 613 commands. If you take one and say that's more important than the other, well, God gave them all, how can you say that? So Jesus, in his masterful way, summarizes all the commands into one command. And this is what Jesus said, and this is the rule of life. If you're a follower of Jesus, 
He has already defined the rule that governs our lives. And this is the rule of life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love God with your entire being, mind, body, spirit, that everything you have is for him, under him. You will trust what he says. He called it evil, we call it evil. He called it good, we call it good. This is the first and greatest commandment. Everyone's like, oh, sounds good. Jesus is like, ah, And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus made this one equal to and combined with, he made it inseparable. It is one command in two veins. And you cannot do one and separate it out from the other. You cannot say you love God and not love your brother. You cannot say you love God and not love your sister, whether in the church or humanity. Because to love God plays itself out in our love for physical human beings. The rule of life is this, love God and love people. We've already talked about loving God. If God has already determined good and evil as it relates to sex, the question like the woman tempted, are we gonna trust his definition? Are we gonna go outside his boundaries? Are we gonna love God or are we gonna go our own way? But what would it look like to love people? To love people well. Paul gives us this summarization in Philippians chapter two. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Rank them as higher, even though you're equal. All humanity is equal. Rank them as above you, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others in your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships, Paul's talking to the church, but in your relationships as it relates to sex, in your relationships as it relates to dating, in your relationships as it relates to being a single person, in your relationships as it relates to being a married person, in your relationships, here's the attitude you're to have. Ranking yourself under, imagine if we applied that to the area of sex. Ranking yourself under, imagine if we applied that to the area of dating. Ranking yourself under. Imagine if we applied that in the area of singleness in the church. We're going to talk about that over the next number of weeks. Why would we do this? Because of Jesus Christ. And Paul would go on that Jesus, though in very nature God, did not use his godness over us, but he used it under us. For our good, he was obedient to death. So that in all the ways we sat in the garden and we said, I'm going to define good and evil for myself. I'm not going to trust God. I'm taking the fruit in every way that we have fallen short and sinned. That our sin would no longer condemn us. That we could walk out into a relationship with God, not with shame, completely vulnerable before our Father in heaven because we stand declared righteous only by his work on the cross. And I know that this area of sex brings up a lot of self-condemnation and shame. And I know that in my life, and I'm sure in yours, there's some things you wish you could have a redo 
And God is calling us. Would you apply the, the rule of love as I define love in your relationships and in all the ways you didn't and haven't? I've covered your sin. Let's pray. To, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that speaks to us in the very places we are. And your word is not silent on the things sometimes we're silent on. And some of the things that we're silent on because, well, we're not sure how to handle that situation or that topic. Things that we're maybe silent on because we're just so filled with our own guilt and shame. We thank you, God, that you in your grace continue to call us into the pathway of life. And in all the ways we've already chosen death, thank you that you have sent your son who though had the authority to just come over us with condemnation, came under us, valuing us, putting us above himself and making, being obedient to death on a cross. So Father, we receive your forgiveness. We thank you, thank you for it. Now Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would ignite in us and show us how we can take that same example of Jesus and live it out in our lives. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.